1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and you're listening to the New Books Network. This is New Books and Sports, and I am Keith Rathbun. I'm coming to you live from Sydney, Australia, where I'm a senior lecturer at Macquarie University. And I'm speaking today with Alistair Shearer. Alistair is a freelance scholar on South Asian religion and culture and a teacher of meditation and the psychology of yoga. And he is the author of an excellent new book that taught me how much I don't know about yoga. The book is called The Story of Yoga from Ancient India to the Modern West. It's out by Hearst & Co. in London, and it came out in 2020. Alistair, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Good to hear you, Keith. Yeah, it's really a pleasure to have you on. Um, I, I, uh, I I was talking to Alistair briefly before we got started with the interview, and I admitted that I'd taken two semesters of Ashtanga Yoga in, in college, which was a long time ago now. Um, but I felt like I'd still remembered a lot of things, but I realized in reading this book, Alistair, that I, I didn't know much about yoga at all. And it was just fascinating how much I didn't know. Um, because I think a lot of people think of yoga as something that we all know about because it's so omnipresent. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you first got interested in yoga, and then we can talk about how much we all don't know about yoga. (laughs) Yes, join the club of those of us
0: who don't know much about it. It's a huge topic. It's a huge subject. You're right, Keith. I've been interested in yoga in some shape or form for for years. I mean, I first went to India, good heavens, what, 50 years ago? I can't believe I'm saying that. Um, And have been interested ever since then, academically and in terms of traveling and earning my living and so on, in India and things Indian. And of course, yoga is one of the great uh, gifts of Indian culture to the rest of the world. So I have a long familiarity with it, but my from a distance. But my particular interest really came in from the side of what I call mind yoga meditation. I learned to meditate in my early 20s and have continued with that ever since. And so I became acquainted over the over time with texts on mental yoga, mind yoga. And at the same time, of course, what I call body yoga was increasing in the West and in the world at large. And it just occurred to me the kind of difference between these two, where they overlap, where they differ. And so little by little, I just felt it would be nice to build up a, a bigger picture of yoga that was a little more comprehensive, that included all these little differences, or in some cases big differences, or if it didn't include them, at least it it referenced them and referred to them. But the actual project for the book only really surfaced two or three years ago, I guess. Um, I was in South India and had time and interest and just thought, well, I should maybe bring this together into some sort of a book. So, no, maybe four years ago, five years ago now. So, the actual book is relatively recent, but it draws on a pretty
1: well a lifetime's interest. Well, it's really clear, um especially in your discussions in kind of the beginnings of yoga, um, just how much expertise you have in kind of the Vedic traditions and uh, South Asian languages. Uh, it's really um it's really impressive and um intimidating in some ways because i like many many people i mean yoga is everywhere you know there's a, there i'm here in sydney obviously we get it outside a lot and body beautiful is very important in sydney but um there's about four yoga studios on my block but reading this book i'm like actually there's only there's only a very limited frame about yoga here um, that people are really involved in in some ways so maybe you can talk a little bit about something you've already hinted at, which is this mind-body split. And and get us into that thorny question, which is persistent in your book, which is, what is yoga anyway? Like how, how, what? What is yoga? What's the mind-yoga, body-yoga split? And how can we define that?
0: Yeah, that's a good question, Keith. It's a root question, really. And that's what the book is about, I guess. It's an attempt just to define this simple word, you know, it's four letters, but it's, it's, it's a very complex word in a sense. And you talk about languages, and I think with a lot of these subjects, the first thing to do is to go back to the language, go back to the word yoga. And what does it mean? Yoga means union. It's a specific term that means union. And union, I guess, is bringing two things together to make them one. To unite them. And from the earliest references to yoga, and we're going back to a group of texts from 600 BC, perhaps, called the Upanishads, ancient Sanskrit texts that were composed in the forest retreats of ancient India. The word yoga is very clearly defined. It's defined as union, and it's union between the individual and the Cosmic, or between the human and the divine, if you want to use theological terminology, between the isolated individual person and a greater reality. So we can define yoga as a theological term, a metaphysical term, a psychological term. It's got many different levels of meaning, but essentially that's what it's about. It's about union. And these texts lay down again quite clearly and fairly explicitly in some cases the steps of these of achieving this union and those steps are all to do with mind yoga they're to do with meditation the earliest texts have virtually no reference to the body side of yoga at all and this is kind of interesting because very often when people are promoting body yoga and incidentally I've i have nothing against body yoga, but just to, to make the distinction. When people are promoting a physical practice, they very often say, oh, yes, this comes from 5,000 years ago, or this comes from 2,000 years ago, or whatever the figure is, which gives it a kind of respectable pedigree, of course. Everybody likes to have the roots of their family tree planted firmly in heaven way back when. But in terms of the evidence, there's absolutely nothing to back that up. The first references to any sustained body yoga, physical practice, physical exercises, breathing exercises, and so on, doesn't come until 10th, 11th century AD, thereabouts. So maybe 1,700 years after these meditation texts, And that is still, it's a long time ago, but in the whole panorama, that is relatively late, you know, it's not not way back at the beginning. So if we want to pick up the earliest references to yoga, we're talking about meditation in various forms, and we're not talking about a physical practice. Now, of course, the two are related, and we know very well, and science is showing ever more clearly that mind and body are the two sides of the same coin. They influence each other continuously and very intimately. So in a sense, this division at a certain level doesn't obtain, but nonetheless, if we are defining our our territories, I think we we can stick with this division. And of course, what you do with meditation affects your body, and what you do with your body affects your mind. So I'm not saying that body yoga, if it's purely rolled out as a fitness regime, doesn't affect the mind, but that's a secondary effect, and it's often not uh, particularly promoted or particularly made made much of. You mentioned the body, beautiful culture, and certainly when we see yoga in the forms it's been taken up with in that kind of arena, and there's very little reference to the, to the psychological or let alone the spiritual effects of a physical practice.
1: Yeah, that was one of the things I found so fascinating about your book. I should, I should um, give listeners a little bit of an outline. But the, the first, uh, the books are roughly 330 pages or so. The first two hundred of the pages are kind of an outline of the beginnings of yoga and the emergence of yoga in the historical record, uh, and then the 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 latter pages, the latter hundred pages or so, are about yoga today and the politics of yoga in the kind of contemporary world. Um, but if you're if you're expecting to read about the, as Alistair suggests, if you're expecting to read about you know body positions, asanas, in the first um 70 80 pages you're you're not going to it's actually a really rich discussion of uh of uh, the cosmological the theological underpinnings of of mind yoga and that was just fascinating for me because not only does it immediately surprise like oh yoga isn't the thing you think it is it's actually a much bigger thing and a and a a richer and a more spiritual thing but also um it throws on, on its head who we think yog, yogis are right so can you talk a little bit about some of yoga's early practitioners like what would they have been doing what um what were the gender politics of early yoga uh in, as as compared to today um and do, do we find any evidence of maybe even the most tenuous evidence of kind of early positions or asanas in in these in these practices Yes, <clears throat> excuse me, that's, that's
0: an interesting point When we begin to see references to the asanas And to the breathing techniques, the pranayamas And the bantas, the various other physical uh, regimes Purification regimes and so on That comprise that aspect of yoga The curious thing is that they, by and large, in fact, I guess pretty well exclusively, have nothing to do with physical fitness. They have, let alone the body beautiful, although yogis are said to develop a very attractive body, but that's that's not the aim of it. They really have very little to do with physical fitness, with wellness, with good health, with any of those things that motivate so many of us to take up Yoga in the modern world. Their main aim is to cultivate what is called the subtle body. Now, the subtle body is something which is central to many esoteric systems around the world. It's it's the kind of inner map of the individual, but especially in yoga and especially in the Indic and Buddhist context, the subtle body is really seen to be the prime aim to to develop the subtle body. And the subtle body is a kind of second nervous system. It's a kind of aerial nervous system, which informs the physical body and energizes the physical body, but is not limited to it. So in other words, your subtle body is not limited to your physical frame. It's within it and also around it. So it's a kind of energetic body which is the subtler level of who and what you are. And ultimately, this subtle body is important because it connects you as an isolated individual to the cosmos at large. So it has that kind of metaphysical function. It's the link, to put it simply, between you and the divine. But more specifically, the subtle body was cultivated in the early yogic texts because it opened the door to supernormal powers. And so the early yogis, as far as we can tell, were divided into two main camps. Some of them were going for enlightenment, which is the unity of the individual with the cosmos, the individual self with the universal self, capital S. And we could call those spiritual yogis, if you like. And the Upanishads that I mentioned talk a lot about that aspect of mind yoga. But there was another camp which really kind of predominated as time went by. So by the time we get to the 14th, 15th century, this is probably the predominant camp of yogis. And they were concerned with cultivating supernormal powers. They wanted to walk on water. They wanted to become invisible. They wanted to be able to enter another person's body from a distance and control their thinking. They wanted to do all sorts of things which enabled them to bend the laws of time and space as we know them. So I guess we could call these magical yogis in a sense. They wanted power. They wanted this ability. And these abilities were called cities in Sanskrit, cities. And the word city means literally perfection. So this was a legitimate exploration of the perfection of the mind. In other words, turn it the other way, they taught that we all live utilizing only a tiny fraction of our mental potential. And yoga was a means to expand this and to be able to greatly expand our agency in all sorts of directions that seem fantastic to the normal daylight waking consciousness that most of us are imprisoned in from their point of view. So we have spiritual yoga that was concerned with enlightenment, which brought with it a kind of moral perfection and a general empathy and understanding for our fellow humans and for all of creation ultimately and then on the other hand we have the magical yogis who are concerned with cultivating powers, they they talked a little bit about enlightenment but it becomes clear that that wasn't really their, their particular interest and it's this kind of wonder working aspect of yoga that has really persisted throughout history until maybe the last 70, 80 years I guess because if you look at the travelers' records of people going to India from very early times onwards, we have records from twelve, thirteen hundred, 1300 and then increasing during the 17th, 18th century of course when there was colonial interest in India and so on there are many accounts of yogis and their powers or their supposed powers, the fact that the Local people certainly believed in their powers. And this continues. Some yogis came to Europe in the 19th century and traveled with circuses and were general kind of part of the exotic oriental East that was being appreciated or discovered by the West. So we get this whole magical... um, element to yoga which as i say has nothing much to do with enlightenment and certainly nothing much to do with good health and healthy living and so on vegetarian diets and all the rest of it that many people may associate with yoga today so it's um, a strange mixture and of course all these different understandings would run parallel they they weren't uh, exclusively dominant on the scene but some were more important at different times than others and the other thing you mentioned gender politics just briefly as far as we can tell this was a male occupation Um, the texts were written by men there are one or two references to female sages if we go way way back to the Upanishads 5th century BC and even earlier to the Vedas, which is the kind of source of Indian spiritual wisdom, the four Vedas. There are female sages, and they're honored equally to men. But in terms of the historical development of yoga, and the descriptions of the physiology and so on, it is almost all to do with male practitioners. And the curious thing from this point of view in terms of comparative history is if we look at the contemporary scene, it's about 90% female. So that has completely swung around within the lot since the middle of the 19th century, I guess, uh, m- middle of the 20th century, 1950s, 1960s, uh, when definitely. yoga came-
1: Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Also. No, 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 okay. I, def- I definitely want to talk about that more, but I want to really emphasize for the people who are, um, for the listeners who might be historians, this middle section of the book, for me, was one of the most fascinating parts when you when you discuss uh, the age of invasions, and then you talk about the yoga going west. I, I'd love to talk, I, in the interest of time, I don't think we have the time to talk about the 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 influence of the mughal invasions and this kind of interplay between um yoga and and sufism in particular it, it's such a rich topic as you pointed out at the beginning there's a lot of threads and so it was hard. it um, must have been very difficult in some ways to 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 decide what to include and what to leave out um, but i guess in the interest of time in thinking about the invasions there's kind of the 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 series of Muslim invasions of in Northern India, but then there's the British invasion of the subcontinent. And you make a point that all of these invasions actually, not only um, uh, the invaders actually take an interest in yoga, but they also in some ways help shape yoga while they're there. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about uh, maybe just the British invasion of the subcontinent and how that helped to to um, not only to help promote the interest in yoga in the West, but also how that helped create in some ways some of the modern strands of yoga we now think of.
0: Yes, it's often forgotten at the moment, I think, that the the British presence in India, to take this specific example, as well as the commercial exploitation and the political influence, I won't say domination, because the Maharajas were still the local rulers in most of India, but the overall cultural domination, which, you know, constituted the kind of bedrock of imperialism, was, if not balanced, it was certainly seasoned by a genuine scholastic interest of... A small, relatively small number of people who were genuinely interested in penetrating this culture in understanding it and in try and in trying in some way to reconcile with it or at least understand it in in our western terminology, so there were great scholars from the age of enlightenment you know which was an incredibly um, vital intellectual movement, really, people trying genuinely to, to understand cultures that were very different from them. And we owe our knowledge of Sanskrit, for example, to an Anglo-Welshman, a guy called Jones, who William Jones, who was a judge in the High Court of Calcutta. So on that level, he was very much part of the Raj apparatus, the governing apparatus, But he became devoted to India. He became a vegetarian. He kept cows. He studied with the Brahmin pundits, and they actually hailed him as one of their own. He said that he was a reincarnated pundit. The pundits are the priestly class, the textual experts in India. And for them to pay this compliment to somebody like that was, speaks for itself, I think. So he was genuinely devoted not only in Indian, not only to Indian languages, but to the flora and fauna and so on. He wrote many books. But he alerted the West to the ancient nature of Sanskrit and the fact that it was the oldest of the Indo-European languages. In fact, he was really the founder of the modern science of languages, comparative languages. And there was another judge in the same court. Calcutta was the capital of the British Raj. A man called John Woodruff, who again from the outside would seem to have been (coughs) a typical Raj representative, but he became very interested in tantra. Now, Tantra is the teaching of the subtle body that I mentioned earlier. And he learned Sanskrit and he produced wonderful translations of ancient Sanskrit texts on the subtle body, on Tantra, on meditation, esoteric yoga, that are still amongst the best in their field today. I mean, if you want to read about the subtle body in its academic or classical sense, then go to John Woodruff. He called himself Arthur Avalon, so he took a, a rather exotic pseudonym. And I've no idea what his fellow Raj people thought of him. I imagine he wasn't probably very welcome at the club in the evenings, but he persisted and produced this uh, wonderful body of work. So there were these, these genuine scholars, and some of them were practitioners as well. Woodruff himself practised practiced yoga. And so there was a kind of intellectual transfer of this information that filtered back to the West. Then there were some women who were out there um, as Raj wives who also took an interest in in the yoga that was being practiced by women. They did find women who were practicing yoga. And there was one, one woman who's a good example of this called Molly Stack, And she incorporated yoga asanas into a general keep fit regime that began to be rolled out through what was called the Women's League of Health and Beauty. This was in the 1920s and 30s. And this became a huge influence initially in the UK, but then worldwide for female fitness. And female physical fitness through these exercises, many of which were yogic in origin, was married, as it were, to the political aspirations and the general social self-awareness and social liberation of women that was beginning to develop apace at that time. So that was a kind of indirect effect of of yoga coming into other reform movements that were taking place in the West that ostensibly had nothing whatsoever to do with with Indian spirituality, but actually there was a a tenuous link, at least with uh, Raj-transmitted practices.
1: This uh, kind of central part of your book is actually really rich in its discussion of, it, it, it. it's to say it's not simply a story about Europeans adapting or adopting yoga from India, and it's not simply a story of kind of maybe Indians translating yoga for interested Europeans, they they're both influencing and engaging with each other. One one of my favorite figures and somebody who I could have read more about. I was like, oh, this guy. There should be a biography of this guy. Uh, was uh, Swami Vivekananda? I'm sure I'm yes. mispronouncing pronouncing all these terms. By the way, <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> but could you tell me, tell everyone a little bit about um, Swami Vivekananda?
0: Vivekananda. Yes, you're right to pick on him, Keith, because he's a central, a central character in this. He was a Bengali, came from Calcutta, as many of the figures in the yoga story did. We have to remember that Bengal was and still is an extraordinarily intellectually vital part of India. It's been, Calcutta has long been the intellectual capital of India, still is today, wonderful cultural hub. And it was also the seat of the Raj government that only moved to to Delhi much later, 1930. So it was the most intense melting pot of ideas and practices and influence. And Vivekananda was a Western educated. He'd been educated in a, a mission school in Calcutta. And he was a skeptic. And the Raj project, you see, was to make Indians or a certain social level of Indian society effectively European in their thinking and in their tastes, because this was felt to be the way that they would progress, unquote, materially progress, and ideally convert to Christianity. That wasn't enforced, I should add. Christianity was never enforced, but that was the ideal of many of the Anglicizers. Vivekananda grew up in this. He was a skeptic. He was scientifically interested and so on. And then one day, just kind of casually, he went with some friends of his to visit a very eccentric temple priest on the outskirts of the city who ran a Kali temple. Kali is the fierce mother goddess called Sri Ramakrishna. And he visited him and was completely transformed by the visit. To cut a long story short, Ramakrishna just transformed by some, whether it was a yogic superpower or just his charisma, his presence, whatever. And so the young skeptic, the young agnostic skeptic became Swami Vivekananda. He took the robe and devoted his life to the the spiritual way. He was, as I say, highly educated, very literate, he was well-read, he was fluent, wrote beautifully, spoke very powerfully. And he ended up in 1893 in the Parliament of World Religions, which was held in Chicago. They had a World Fair in Chicago. And part of this was what was called the Parliament of World Religions, which, as the name suggests, was a platform for people from all over the world, religious leaders from all over the world, to come together and um, not hawk their wares exactly, but uh, present their their viewpoints on the universe. And it was a lovely story. I could go on. I must, we must watch the time. But he had a lot of trouble actually getting onto the podium because he had no official qualifications and it was an academic affair. But anyway, through a series of happy coincidences, he did end up being there and being able to speak. And he absolutely galvanized the meeting. He was the standout star of the show. He stood up. He was a very personable character. He was good-looking. He had an orange robe and a yellow turban. He was very striking physically. And he began his speech, Brothers and Sisters of America. I stand before you as the representative of a religion which, out which, of which Buddhism was the errant child and Christianity the faintest echo. Now, this was to a largely Christian audience, but he, he got a standing ovation for this. And there were many influential people in the audience, including Annie Besant, who went on to be the leader of the Theosophists, which was a very powerful movement that was trying to bring East and West together. But this speech established Vivekananda in a particular stratum of American society, the kind of East Coast intellectuals, people like William and Henry James, Emerson, Thoreau, David Thoreau. And these were people who were already exploring a kind of philosophy called transcendentalism. And this was, as the name applies, it was a kind of spiritual philosophy that sought to counteract the growing power of materialism in America and in the West in general. So they took to Vivekananda and he traveled around America, he lectured, he was offered a couple of university places, uh, posts, professorships at Harvard and at Princeton, but he turned both of them down. He said he didn't want to be um, attached to any one particular academic institution. But of all the people who built the bridge between ancient yoga and modern yoga between India and the West. Vivekananda is probably the central figure. And he published a a version of the Yoga Sutras, which is the prime text of mind yoga. He called it Raja Yoga. That was very influential. And he spoke and he wrote. He wrote voluminously. He wrote many, many books. And these were read by all sorts of people not just academics and students, but people who had an interest in the spiritual life, people who had an interest in yoga itself. This is mind yoga. He taught very little about physical yoga. He had the Victorian idea that the body should be, should be firm and healthy in order to have a healthy mind, but he recommended football as much as asanas to his students. He changed this a little bit when he realized that the West was in a way, more open to a physical development than a mental development, because we're materialists, you know, we're in the body, we like the body, and that's more accessible initially than something like the practice of meditation, perhaps, or appears to be. But by and large, this was mind yoga, and he allied this teaching of mind yoga to the philosophy, philosophy or the outlook that essentially all religions are one. If you get deep enough into any one religion, you will meet the others. So it's rather as if the whole panoply of religion is like a wheel, and if you're stuck on the rim of the wheel, then you're stuck with historical differences and separations, divisiveness, and all the nonsense that goes on, as we know, between religions to this day. But if you go down the spokes of the wheel from your one particular position on the rim, eventually you come to the hub and the hub is empty, the hub is formless and the hub unites all the disparate spokes of the wheel. So his teaching was that meditation, yoga in that sense, was the journey down down to the centre of the wheel. And the closer to the center you got, then the nearer you got to other religions. And all the superficial cultural religions, all, all the superficial cultural differences and antagonisms between religions progressively began to disappear the nearer the heart you got. And I think this is a, an outlook which I happen to, to share personally. But I think it's something which is extraordinarily relevant for our time, and I think more and more people are coming to this from whatever angle, from whatever their particular direction may be, coming to this realisation that the spiritual life is one, if we're going to use that word, and the cultural historical differences needn't blind us to that. Of course, if, if you are very... Emotionally tied to your particular religious expression, you will resist this. And there are many movements against yoga from various uh, fundamentalist groups in in the different religions that that would dispute this and f- feel this was a dangerous teaching because it's eroding differences that they hold to be very dear. But this was Vivekananda, so who's a very modern. Figure, I think, a forward looking figure, an extraordinary figure. He died when he was 32. You know, he was a young man, so he had tremendous energy and a remarkable character. And you're right, there should be, I'm sure, if there isn't, it's being written as we speak. There should be a, an in depth biography of him because he's a, a key figure in this.
1: It makes me think of uh, two, you, what what you're saying made me t- think of two different things. Um, one is, of course, that, um, you know, even even Hindu nationalists can approach this kind of um, fundamentalist view. And you, you actually talk about I don't know that we'll have time to get to it. Um, but at the end of the end of the book, you talk in some depth about the danger of the politicization of yoga by certain groups uh, in the Hindu movement. But just for people who haven't read the book, the other parallel for me in reading it to Vivekananda is um, the Mysore School, which is much more physically oriented. I don't know that we have time to go into all the all the detail of that, but um, the I think those those for me when I was reading it, those um, Vivekananda and the Mysore School provided some interesting kind of parallels as 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 different groups of of yogis in in different places um attempted to think about yoga in, in new ways that appealed to kind of modern audi- audiences and, and for people uh, again for people who are interested um there's a, a really funny and excellent chapter on strong men yoga that i think shows some of the blending of east and west um, as you get these kind of as you hear from fig- figures like sandow and atlas who are maybe more well known Uh, but from the context of India and not from their kind of usual places. Uh, So when I was reading, I was really like, oh, I'm getting the sense then that both um, mind, but especially positional yoga becomes more of a combination uh, of East and West as it modernizes and as it hybridizes as people are moving. Um, But it always kind of retains maybe more of a subcontinental flavor um, I, that's maybe not how exactly how I want to say that, but um that actually it's more more um more transcendental too than I think people understand um, so that I, I, that was really like rich for me that parallel. Maybe I'm reading something into it that's not there, but that was my my reading of it.
0: no, that's uh that's fine that's right, I think Keith and the The Mysore school, just to pick up on that, I mean, if Vivekananda was the mind yoga side, the Mysore school is the main conduit of of physical yoga coming into the 20th century. It's called that because the Maharaja of Mysore, who was a very um, forward-looking ruler, employed yoga teachers at his palace, initially to teach his own children, but then to initiate a revival of physical yoga. And the most important person who was operating within that school was BKS Iyengar, which is a name, of course, we're all familiar with, or most of us are familiar with, in terms of the the physical yoga. He was the main physical yogi in terms of his influence on the West. And interestingly enough, Iyengar as a child had been very sickly. He was had a a number of physical weaknesses. His mother had been ill when she was pregnant with him. And he took up yoga initially as a purely remedial physical practice in order to build up muscle strength. He couldn't even lift his head off his chest when he was a young boy. He had no strong neck muscles to enable him to do that. And yoga really brought about a miraculous cure and development for him. And he turned into an astonishing physical specimen. I mean, he could do the headstand for half an hour when he was still in his 80s and did so regularly. So we're getting the idea of yoga as a physical remedial practice through Iyengar and his particular um, his particular school and his disciples And that continues today I mean, it's it's a very, very well thought of And widely represented school of yoga The Iyengar school, of course And there were other people from the Mysore school as well Patabi Joyce and um, Desika Cha Who also spread the, the gospel of, of physical yoga Alongside that as well, was a more formal development of yoga as a scientific, non-spiritual, non-transcendental means of remedial body development. And this began in Mumbai, in Bombay, in the 1920s, with the establishment of what was called the Yoga Institute, which still goes today. And that was the first yoga institute in the world and has been, since the 1920s, taking a purely scientific view of yoga. There's no philosophy, there's no um, attempt to uh, get into anything metaphysical, but just monitoring, assessing and applying the physiological and remedial benefits of yoga as a therapy So it's interesting that that came from India That didn't actually come from the West One might have imagined that would have been developed In the States or somewhere in the West But it was actually developed in colonial uh, Bombay As it was then in the, From the 1920s onwards And that of course is a big uh, a big aspect of yoga today The fact that many health systems are not adapting yoga wholesale, but they're acknowledging that a yogic routine or some sort of yogic practice can be good for the health and um weight loss and you know various other concerns of modern medicine.
1: And I, I wish I mean I wish there's still kind of more history to bring it to the, the fore, but I want to spend some time to talk about your kind of contemporary um I wouldn't call it a critique, a contemporary analysis of yoga, where yoga is today. Um, but for people who are keen to learn more about the uh, the Maharishi and the Beatles, you do, you do read about them as well. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about uh, the kind of emergence of yoga in the 60s and 70s, just in bringing it up uh, more or less to the contemporary period. So um, if that's stuff that you're interested in, that's also in the book. But as I say, Alistair, second, I guess the the last third of the book is what you call part two today. And it's got subsections on physical limits going within contemporary cautions and kind of looking ahead. Uh, You take on things like the origins and issues with hot yoga, uh, the science of mindfulness and the four types of mind yoga. Is there anything in particular in this section that you think is really rich that you want to talk about? I, I could go any way. I, reading this section there are so many different things <laughs> and in your chapter yoga shmoga just discussing all the different kind of yogas is really funny <laughs> Good.
0: yes but, i i didn't I didn't want to be too solemn you know about all of this and i'm I'm glad you say you found it an analysis um you know looking back i i I don't want to be too um you know it's not a trenchant criticism but i think there are cautions and i think um you know it's as if there's a wonderful banquet spread in front of us and i think too many of us are kind of stuck on the starter course in a way and i don't mean that in a condescending way but just simply there's there's so much in in yoga so much um in the teaching i don't mean just knowing about it but also for people who are practicing it so i was I was keen to keen to bring that out um and of course, you know the world we live in yoga it becomes popular it becomes commercialized there are ways to make a buck out of it, and all sorts of um yoga schmoga comes up that's fine you know it it doesn't uh, i don't I don't want to be too sort of uh, gloomy about it i in terms of what you've just mentioned Keith, I think mindfulness is very interesting here as an example of what happens or what can happen when East meets West and ancient meets modern because mindfulness is, is a wonderful practice and many, many people are getting huge benefit from it and I wouldn't want to again say that at all, of course not. But it is well worth remembering, perhaps, that mindfulness originally was a kind of entry-level Buddhist teaching. What we call mindfulness is what Buddhists call Vipassana. And it's an entry-level means of settling the mind down and overcoming intrusive or negative or unuseful thoughts. What is interesting about mindfulness is not just its efficacy, because as I say, many people do get great benefit from it, but the ends to which, to which it's been put, because mindfulness is generally promoted as a way to get your life back on track if for some reason it seems to have veered off in some way. So it's a kind of therapy, and it's a way to enable one to access a greater sense of agency and get back into a successful life, unquote, whatever that may be, however you may construe that. And so we get mindfulness being taught in the corporate settings, in various settings, as a kind of tool to boost one's efficiency and one's, even one's productivity. I'm sure in some Amazon places, Amazon um, sheds their practicing mindfulness so they can work faster. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> but, um, and, uh, okay, I mean, that's one thing. But in terms of its origin, uh, mindfulness was taken to be a very powerful means when you pursue it to actually deconstructing the whole sense of social self and isolated individuality, because the Buddhists who uh, began mindfulness see that sense of the isolated ego as being the source of all our suffering, not that it should be boosted to be more efficient and earn more or whatever, but that it should actually be um, disassembled and transcended to access wisdom and enlightenment. So what we're getting in the modern world is that this ancient practice has been adopted into the modern context and turned to an almost opposite use from which it was originally intended. So I find that's an interesting um, historical irony in a sense. And I think the whole story of the journey of yoga coming west is full of these at different, different levels. And in a way, that's fine. We are who we are, you know, and we have our modern mindset. On the other hand, it might well be the fact that what yoga is talking about at its real depth is something that could be useful to our modern predicaments because it's not as if our modern mindset is has got all the answers and is, you know, creating a paradise. I don't need to go on about that. We all know that's not the case. So i would just hope that in the future yoga is is not just shelved as a purely remedial or a pure, purely kind of exotic form of gym, gymnastics but that its deeper levels are plumbed because i think there's there's a wealth of intelligence and and wisdom available there for us if we if we're minded to find
1: it yeah I, um in reading this this kind of final section i, I i found myself identifying myself i was like oh well i took these yoga classes even still today i might do yoga in a class or by myself at home um but i I don't spiritualize it it's very much just about physical health and then in the chapter on mindfulness i've done mindfulness therapy you know uh keith keith is feeling frustration right now (laughs) how do you you so i but then, when you when you're laying it out like that, you're like, actually, I am. I'm I'm completely in all of these practices that I I've adapted myself as a very individuated person, autonomous person. I've adapted these ancient ancient techniques, but I've totally abstracted them from their historical meaning and context and their spiritual context. Oh. And there is a real. Um, I think you're right when you say there is a real cost to that because absent of their moral context they they become just kind of tools that have their good uses and their bad uses right (laughs) in in some ways that's what this what this final um this final section is all about i mean we can do postural yoga and it can benefit our bodies but if we don't do it right it actually makes things worse we can practice mindfulness but if it's a shallow mindfulness Maybe we're not actually getting the spiritual sucker that we might actually need. And then of course, your last chapter on the use of yoga by Hindu nationalists is, is full of um, some real ironies about what yoga is meant to be doing. Isn't it? Yes. (laughs) Maybe you can talk about that um, quickly. And uh, we, so uh, just to give people some of the flavor of that, to bring it back to that, the hard hitting politics. And I, I, I assume that's why you ended the book with that, because it it kind of, it really lands. And you're like, oh, that's important.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, that's the supreme historical irony, I think. And in a way, it, you know, part of it is traceable to the post-colonial situation, of course, because one thing that a colonized country suffers, let alone economic repercussions, is a huge dent to self-esteem. And of course, this was so in the case of India with the Anglicizers trying to um, uh, educate Indians to become Europeans, as it were. And so what we're getting now in terms of Hindu nationalism is partly at least a backlash to that because the Indians, understandably, are very keen to draw on their own um, strengths, their own traditions, their own history, their own integrity all of which um, suffered under the Raj occupation so that's perfectly comprehensible but the trouble is that something like, like yoga which ideally takes one beyond any sort of division of, of race or creed or culture ultimately and brings one back to a common humanity That is also being um, occupied, in a sense, as part of the nationalist statement by the Modi government, or if not Modi himself, at least the the right wing, the BJP, the various factions in Indian politics which are on the right. And yoga is being rolled out as almost a compulsory discipline in, in some aspects of Indian education, And this goes along with a rewriting of Indian history, which is not historically accurate uh, in, in many cases and tends to blame foreign powers for things that they weren't always to blame for and generally creates an idealized picture of some ancient Indian society which was perfect or near perfect until the colonial influence, starting with the Muslims in the 11th century, came and destroyed it. I mean, I'm, I'm putting it very crudely, but that's, that's the kind of essence of it. And this is infecting the education system and so on. So a whole new generation of Indians is, if these people have their way, is going to be brought up with inaccurate picture of the past. Now, history is very contentious. What is true in historical terms? What is accurate history? That's a whole other debate that we don't have time to get into. But just in terms of the importance of India being equated with the importance of being a Hindu, and the importance of being a Hindu equating with not being a Muslim and not being a Christian, this is from the fundamentalist point of view, leads obviously to social problems of discrimination and so on between the different groups. And it's a tragedy because India, you know, there's a lot of talk in the West and agonizing over the difficulties of multiculturalism and diversity. These are the buzzwords at the moment. Everybody's very concerned about all of this. Historically, India holds up a model of extraordinary multicultural success and extraordinary diversity. And in ancient times, refugees, political refugees, economic refugees, because India was very wealthy in the past, they would all end up in India. You know, India culturally or historically was what America is today in the minds of the disadvantaged. It was a place to go where you could be yourself, where you could make a living, make a new start, and so on and so forth. So there was this wonderful tradition i mean i'm not idealizing it there were terrible times partition of course when the british left the clashes between the hindus and the muslims or particularly the sikhs and the muslims in punjab but apart from that there is very very little history of religious wars in india the muslim hindu conflict of course was an exception but that came from the on from the incoming Uh, Muslim, Islamic stream within themselves, indigenous Indians, um, have got on remarkably well as far as we can tell the different communities. So Hindu nationalism, to come back to that, is uh, an anomaly and a a tragic one really because if I think if India has one thing to offer the world in in this area and again not to idealize it, there are many, many things in Indian society that... um, as everywhere in the world, need improving. But in terms of tolerance, in terms of openness, in terms of accepting of difference, India has had a remarkable legacy, it seems to me. And so this, this is an, an added sadness to the co-opting of, of yoga, the co-opting of um, Indian spirituality in the name of a narrow nationalism.
1: Well, Alistair, and I want to I want to tell all our readers, by the our listeners, by the way, um, that we've just scratched the surface with the book. There, there's so much more um, in it, and uh, it's really worth a read. And it's encouraged me to maybe look into some um, maybe mind yoga to add to some of the the body practices that I might uh, continue doing. Um, I think that'll be useful. For me. So I, it was also kind of personally useful. <laughs> and, not, and not, not just kind of academically useful and academically interesting and uh scholarly like in a scholarly way, but also personally. It made me think a lot about my own life. So I want to say thank you for that. Well thank you. <laughs> you. Thank you. I, I wanna ask you quickly the last hmm. question I ask all of my guests, which is what can we look forward to reading from you next? Are you going back to Uh, studies of uh, uh, sanskrit texts or are we going to be reading more about yoga
0: i think both keith i'm just about to release a revision of what was actually my first book from many moons ago which is a (coughs) excuse me translation of the or some of the upanishads
1: that i mentioned well we'll be looking forward to that which
0: um sorry just to finish is uh What I've tried to do is not just present an academic treatise, but just to point out how these ancient thinkers were dealing with subjects which are still relevant to us today. You know, subjects of identity, subjects of purpose, where we're going. You know, the big questions that we all come back to in different shapes and forms. So uh, that'll be out, I hope, in January just called the Upanishads. And then maybe the stuff that was cut out of the first book might make a second book on, on <laughs> the, yoga. <laughs>
1: the, the, the second story of yoga. I'll be looking The second story today. of yoga. <laughs> we, well, we've been listening to Alistair Sheer. Alistair is a freelance scholar on South Asian religion and culture and a teacher of meditation and the psychology of yoga. We've been talking to him about his his absolute cracker of a book, uh, The Story of Yoga from Ancient India to the Modern West. It's out right now uh, from Hurston Co. uh, Came out in 2020. You can pick it up very easily, and it's uh, a great read. And I encourage you all to do that. Thank you, Alistair, very much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you, Keith. Good to talk. You all have been listening to New Books in Sport, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathman. I'm coming to you live from Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. Thank you all for joining us.